We're continuing our time uh, in thinking about, uh, thinking together about church history. Um, we continue this morning after last week, question and answer with Jim, and then the week before that with Sean. And where our technology is a continuing challenge between my little iPad here and the spotty internet we have and syncing up. So we're sort of having to coordinate this with me looking at one here and Heath advancing in the back. So thanks for doing that. Uh, hopefully you're looking at us. The other aspect of this is sometime in the future, hoping maybe we can get a screen there so I can, we can actually see and don't have to continually turn around to see, make sure the right slide's on the screen. But nonetheless... Uh, we're going to discuss this morning church fathers. And these are uh, church fathers after Constantine, which y'all discussed a couple of weeks ago, and I, I was not here. I'm sure the Deshaun did an excellent lesson at that time, and it was outstanding. I'm sure you remember it all. So I'll quiz you on that just a moment. Now before we start, let's, let's open in prayer. Lord, thank you for, for the day. Thank you for our worship service. I pray, Father, that you would help the truth of your word and your law and the grace of Christ to sink deeply in our hearts this day. And as we meet now and later in small groups and throughout the day, that we would be very mindful of keeping the day holy and set apart to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, the church fathers is where we are today. And to sort of set up our discussion here of the church fathers, uh, we will uh, consider um, only three of them and the three that we're going to discuss are Ambrose, Augustine, and Jerome, which is only three post-Constantine church fathers out of a list that's really, really long. There are lots of quote-unquote church fathers. And I started to go down the list, but uh, just to read them out, and I didn't list them up there, you can very easily inquire of Lord Google who the post-Constantine church fathers are, and you'll get a list. And, by the way, now that you, those of you that are operating chatbot GPT, you can inquire of chatbot, and it'll give you a list of the post-Constantine church fathers. But before we get into these three, Ambrose and Augustine and Jerome, let's think just a moment about what we have done thus far. So, uh, first of all, in the first session, or in the first couple of sessions, we, we recapped church history in reference to the apostolic age. This is immediately after the crucifixion of Jesus, and the apostles are still living, and there are emerging churches, and we discussed that, uh, that time and that era, and we discussed it around the context of the spread of the church, 
uh, as Paul in his missionary journeys and, and the dispersion of the church under persecutions and some of that early uh, worship practice, characteristics of early simple worship of the early church, uh, we discuss those things in the early post-apostolic age. After that came a session on the martyrs as, as the church grew under the Roman Empire various persecutions began to break out amongst um, Christians all throughout the empire. You can go to the map now um, there, Heath. So looking at the Roman Empire surrounding the Mediterranean Sea and as the church was dispersed um, in the various towns and places, there was um, certain types of persecution. Some just locally because people didn't like Christians. They were, they were sort of anti-empire values, anti-Roman values, um, counter-cultural in the truest sense of the word for the culture of the Roman Empire at that time. And so we looked at that and then some of the martyrs, how they were uh, absolutely suffered in ways that we can not imagine. We cannot imagine ways being drug out of homes and killed uh, in many instances. And then uh, that's in the most extreme uh, suffering and persecution. And in the subtler ways, being treated as outcasts in your community for claiming the name of Christ. And I guess the softer way of lesser uh, suffering or lesser than the ultimate suffering. We looked at that. And then... Finally, the, the last time we were together under the topic, as Sean discussed, Constantine, wherein the church transitions from outcast to incast, outsider, the ultimate outsider, to the ultimate insider. And it happens under the the ruler Constantine. The church has been operating, Christianity has been operating. And and if you want to know the scale, I'm always thinking about, probably because of my line of work, you know, how how many people are we talking about out of the whole of society of that time? Uh, What's the scale of their operation? Where are they located geographically? Da, 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 da. So... If we were looking at the scope and scale of the Roman Empire in that that colored area there around the Mediterranean Sea at the time of Constantine, you're looking at um, um, multiple millions of people, 12, 14 million, uh, and then you're looking at, um, who knows, the number of 100,000 Christians. You're looking at a small segment of society that that is Christian. The rest of it's utterly pagan, worshiping all the deities of uh, the Roman Empire. And Constantine comes along, and as, as Constantine um, begins to conquer the entirety of the Roman Empire through his uh, leadership in battle, he comes to the Battle of of Milvian Bridge, and I'm sure y'all discussed the Battle of Milvian Bridge, where he, you probably should tell the story, I think he sees a cross in the sky, and 
and it's a witness to him that he needs to, or a sign, he interprets it as a sign that he needs to embrace the Christian religion, and he does, and he wins the battle. <laughs> and, um, you know, we could, I'm sure y'all went all down that discussion. But from that point, and once Constantine rules over all, he issues the Edict of Toleration. Christianity, this is like whiplash. People go from being not liked to the official favored ones in the empire. We could talk long. I'm guessing y'all talk long. I looked at Sean's slides. Y'all discussed what does this mean to be, uh, you know, sort of be in a favored status. All sorts of new influences come into the church. So, the church experiences an influx of people, because, not because necessarily because they love and honor the name of Christ and are believers, but because it's a societal thing to do. It's a respectable thing to do, to be in that sort of influence. Not in all cases, but new... So, another aspect of Constantine's time, now that there's peace in the land, there's disputes all around this empire. Uh, what, is, what, is, what is it we believe? Because there was a man named Arius who was teaching that Jesus was made, was not co-equal with God. He was... He was uh, a, a separate and I get almost lesser deity. Uh, this was Arius, and he's teaching this, and the teaching gains traction, and so the Council of Nicaea is called, and uh, the Nicaea hammers out. We won't go into the Nicene Creed, but we recite it here frequently, and it is a direct connection from our group to this time and place in history. And it is so vitally important because the doctrine of your faith believer, what you believe, is guided and formulated by this council. And it's very, very, very important. And it connects us to history throughout time. And it's another thought, because as, as we get into the church fathers momentarily, the three that we're going to look at, uh, by the way, the, the third edict there, the edict of uh, Thessalonica, 380, the church goes from being, or Christianity goes from being tolerated to the formal, official religion of the empire. A whole is entirely co-opted into the function of the Roman Empire. Which much could be said and discussed about this. But in the midst of all of this switch and shift, the, the three church fathers that we look at and the Council of Nicaea begin to formulate the foundations of what we understand uh, as our faith today. Interpreting Scripture, 
defining orthodoxy, what is God's truth and what is not God's truth. And as Jim preached this morning, separating out the the shepherds in wolves' clothing and the, how did he say it? The shepherds in wolves and the wolves in sheep's clothing or whatever. Because God's people have, they are, we've already talked about sheep. Where's Tim? There's his, okay. The, the wolves are after them all the time. The predators are at the door, the Bible tells us. It's crouching at the door ready to pounce. It's not that we're living in a world that is without danger or care. Though we might have lots of comfort and wealth and beautiful houses and nice cars and heat and thermostats on the wall and computers and money running out our ears, we are in forever danger. And we are right now. We are right now at this moment. I wish we could maybe I don't wish we could fully grasp the continual threat that we are under. And when the guard is dropped The stuff comes in. The church is under this right now. We are struggling with it mightily in our day. There are all kinds of forces seeking to devour the truth of Jesus Christ. Co-opt it. So, we must forever guard against it. We must continually be Reformed, and what's the phrase? Always reforming. Augustine, we'll get into Augustine in a moment. All right, so let us, let us look at our three church fathers as we think about this for a few minutes. Let us start with, uh, so you got the context? We've got a peacetime now. If, if we could liken it to our day, let's think of the United States in the 1950s. When we had Leave It to Beaver on TV, Mayberry, everybody's, everybody's getting married and having 2.5 kids. Everybody's got a house. There's no war on the horizon. The stock market's going up every day. And we go and down to church on Sundays and wear a boutonniere on Mother's Day and a rose. And a, it's, you know, this is. This is kind of, I'm probably overdoing it, but this is kind of the context that the Christians find themselves. There's peace. Ambrose of Milan will be our first father. Again, remember, there's a long, there's a list of, well, most everything's longer than I am tall, but this, there's a long list of uh, church fathers. We're doing three of the most prominent and significant. Ambrose of Milan. So Ambrose is born in what uh, we would now call, uh, I mean, what we would now call France uh, in the, well, actually we'd probably call it Belgium and the Rhineland area. 
uh, he is born there to a Christian family. Remember, this is a, we're in a new age. The thing to do is be Christian, really. I'm not casting doubts on their parents' faith. I'm just saying it, was, it would not be, um, it would be a, a normal thing to have a Christian set of parents and that were involved or close to the governmental structure. And this was the case of Ambrose. He was born to the son, born the son of a Roman governor in, um, in Gaul or uh, northern France area. As he grew up, he entered the, he, he went to law school, uh, had a nice, easy, easy life, went to law school, and he got appointed to uh, service of the government uh, as a, well, as a governor. Uh, the governor, and he was assigned to Milan. Has anyone ever been to Milan? I'm sure Katie's been to Milan. Katie and Brian's been to Milan, of course. They've been everywhere. Uh, is anybody else? Sean's been everywhere. You've been to Milan? Paul's been to Milan? So Ambrose is the governor of Milan. What happens in Ambrose's life is that while he was uh, the governor of Milan in his 30-ish, mid-30s or so, there's a bishop of Milan. Remember, there are individual churches in the cities. And when we say bishop here, in this case, we don't, I'm not talking a Roman Catholic bishop. I'm talking a local teaching elder who was over the church. He was essentially the pastor, which could be termed presbyter or bishop. He was the bishop of the church. He died. So Ambrose was a diplomatic, pleasing, smooth, that has negative connotations, um, easy to talk with, fair-minded guy. He was well-liked in the city of Milan as a politician in service of the government. So when the bishop of the church died, let's just say uh, Jim died, okay, not really. As an example, okay. And we needed to select a new pastor. <laughs> there was a dispute in the church as to who, because there was a heresy raging, raging, uh, a, a, a strong heresy present, I should say, not raging, present, of the Arians. And the Arians were those heretics, determined heretics, by the council of Nicaea who said that Jesus was secondary to God. He wasn't co-equal with God, and they called a whole council of Nicaea to settle this dispute. So you had the Arian faction, and you, you ever heard of factions in the church? They had some factions in this church. You had the Arian faction, and you had the Nicene faction, those that adhered to the results of the Nicene Council. And Ambrose appears before the church and, um, to sort of mediate this dispute. And he says, look, y'all, you're Christian people, be civil, act Christianly to one another, etc. And he makes this um, plea for calm in this matter. And they say, well, let's make Ambrose the bishop. 
Ambrose wasn't even baptized. And ultimately, and understand when we do this, these are gross simplifications of the history. <laughs> they are so inadequate. To, but, um, disclaimer. Let's make Ambrose the bishop. And they did. He was elected the bishop. Hadn't even been baptized. He was baptized, he was catechized, baptized, and with a week and within a week he was the bishop of the church. So Ambrose uh he he um uh goes on um to serve the church in very, very gifted ways. He was an excellent orator or preacher. He preached profoundly. He was um very kind and good and gentle shepherd in his community, in his church. And he was much beloved and very well thought of, was Ambrose. If I had to characterize him in my poor characterization, he was just a, he was a real, solid, relatable, devoted person. And because of that, he was widely and deeply loved. So this is Ambrose. Just pause there for a moment or file that away to the side and let's go to uh, our second church father, which is Augustine of Hippo. And by the way, I started down the path a minute ago to say this and then I lost my way, which is not uncommon. You know, we're looking at the fathers of the church and and if you're thinking, uh, which is we're often prone to meet it with Catholic saints, the Catholic Roman Catholic Church has claimed these people as saints and venerated in them, venerated them in ways that we don't believe in. But nonetheless, they have an appreciation for these fathers of the church in ways that we don't, and. We're our church life, I'm not speaking of us in particular, but generally speaking, Protestant church life is impoverished because we don't fully understand, recognize, and appreciate these uh, these uh, saints of old, little s. Let's talk about Augustine just a moment. One of the greatest, I shouldn't say greatest, most prominent prolific and influential of all the church fathers, if not the most. Augustine was born in 354. Remember where we are in context? The Council of Nicaea has just been 25 years earlier, 325. The Edict of Toleration, where just before the official uh, Christianity becomes the official written in the law religion, of the Roman Empire, Augustine is born in um, in Namibia in North Africa. Now, anybody been to Algeria? Brian has, I'm sure, and Sean, the usual suspects. Paul, yeah. Northern Africa is in the north of Africa, and it's very. It's a joke. By the way, have y'all seen the YouTube videos of? Um, the 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 interviews some of them are a little little dicey 
of the, the, the British lady, uh, C-U-N-K, Miss um, Anna, Amina, Amina. She does like Borat interviews. Oh, mockumentary is the one. Stunningly hilarious. They're very funny. I'm not... How'd I go there? I'm sorry, Paul. I'm trying to stay on track. Uh, he's born in North Africa, which is... Oh, I said it because North Africa is in North Africa. That sounds like she... Uh, she... So North Africa, right there, just south, it's real close to Italy, you know. It's not far from Rome. It's right in that area. So he's born there. Son of a... You, you know who his mother was? Do you, is anybody... Rec- no, no, the ones that no can't answer. <laughs> the ones that don't know, know who his mother was. He's born to a Christian mother named Monica. So mothers, mothers, go to Lord Google or your favorite search engine and plug in Monica, a praying mother. He was born to a Christian mother named Monica and a a pagan father. He... um, uh, he was very intellectually gifted early on, and his um, father, he wanted to see him be a successful, just be a success in something, the law or something, get this guy in school, he's sharp as a tack, etc. And he did, he went to Carthage. And it, again, grossly oversimplifying a man's life. He goes to Carthage to school and begins to live in a licentious kind of way. And he's very promiscuous. He is, uh, uh, he's, likes pleasurable things, finer things of life. And coupled with that, he's always looking for truth. And he pursues several paths. The Manicheans was a philosophy of the, an older philosophy that was prevalent in the day. He pursues truth. Um, he goes to various schools to learn uh, the things that you learned when you were in that time in Rome. The best schools. He ends up in Milan in the midst of this search. His heart's searching, and he's living a good life. <laughs> he's, he's a college guy. And he encounters Ambrose, this kind father of the church there. He hears Ambrose, you remember we were just talking about Ambrose. He hears Ambrose preach, and he begins to be um, drawn in to the Christian faith. And he begins to um, he begins to study. And as uh, the story goes, the legend goes. Hopefully, it's true. But the story is 
that as one day he was contemplating one of Ambrose's sermons, he, um, by the way, here's another side note. At the time, the only way to read, no, that was Jerome. We'll come to him in a moment. Um, he's contemplating Ambrose's sermon. He hears a child out in the courtyard saying, take up and read. And he's moved to take up Romans 13. And he reads the gospel. And Augustine is converted. And when I say converted, he is radically converted. His life has changed. And by the way, Monica, that... uh, That my mom has prayed for me. And I know all you mothers are praying mothers too. Monica prayed for Augustine's conversion throughout. She watched him in his rebellion. She watched him as he had a child out of wedlock. She watched him through all his machinations of, of his licentious living, praying that God would redeem him. And so it happened. Uh, he was uh, converted, and uh, he's converted radically. He drops all his women, of which he had a number, and he goes to North Africa. He wants to kind of be in seclusion to think and consider his life now as a Christian. Uh, when he gets to North Africa, sort of like Ambrose, he stumbles into the city of Hippo. And in Hippo, there is uh, also sort of a controversy around heresy uh, taking place. And this has to do with the Pelagian heresy. Now, the Pelagian heresy, to, uh, to continue to grossly oversimplify is to is an heresy that says you have a choice in your salvation and you can be a good person if only you will just be good you muster up your will you're not born in sin you can be a good person and you can choose to be saved this was the pelagian heresy and as augustine comes into hippo in his i can't remember the exact ages he comes in or I'm going to say early 30s, I hope that's right, 40-ish. He comes in, and as he interacts over the Pelagian heresy in his Christianity, he finds himself being made pastor of the church in Hippo, the bishop of Hippo, Augustine. And he begins to serve there, and he begins to be prolific in writing for the edification of the church that is amazing. He writes... He teaches, he preaches, and his two uh, key works that we'll look at briefly are his writings of the Confessions, Augustine's Confessions, and also the City of God. Let's look at them, I think. Yes, the Confessions. Now, the Confessions he wrote, this is rich. You know, we as you pick up your hot-off-the-press devotionals and your latest Christian writings from your favorite and hopefully orthodox Christian teacher, 
balance it. Go pick up. You know, there's a movement that says, toss out, toss out, toss, don't. Those people were, were tainted, you all right? Yeah. Um, those people, those old folks are tainted. <laughs> You're not going to get anything out of it. So the, 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 the challenge is balance out your devotional reads. So, so he writes a confession and it's sort of a spiritual autobiography. And uh, you can see down, I won't, I won't read. Uh, uh, so look at there. I, took, I sent all my, uh, all my bullet points under confessions. I didn't finish them. So... Uh, so those are some of the characteristics of Augustine's life. The, only the first one is out of the confessions. Um, and then the last bullet on the confession side is a quote uh, out, of, uh, out of his confession. So let me talk to you about it briefly. Augustine traces that early life of licentious living and his rebellion uh, and his conversion uh, in his confessions. And one of the most interesting stories is a little minor incident in his life in which he comes face to face with his own sin and depravity. And it's a little simple story of when he was walking down the road in his teens and there was a pear tree over in the neighbor's courtyard. And he went over and he stole the pear. Not because he um, was hungry, just because he could steal it. And so Augustine develops the, the doctrine of original sin um, it, uh, uh, with, with, with the understanding and the observation that even an infant uh, without guidance and restraint is going to be prone to violence. Even from, so we're not, we're born with a proclivity to sin. This is part of Augustine's thing. And this was a, and you can imagine in the face of the Pelagian heresy that this was uh, an important teaching. Uh, Augustine goes on to, to uh, provide his spiritual autobiography and confessions. And the, that phrase, uh, we've often said it in some of our service here, and you've heard it. Uh, Lord, you, my, uh, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Thee. That's one of his quotes out of, uh, out of the confession. So that's one thing. The other thing uh, Augustine develops in fighting the Pelagian heresy, first of all, the original sin part. Second of all, that no, the Lord is the one that saves you. The providential movement of the Holy Spirit on your life is what draws you to Christ. You don't really make that choice. This was another part of um, Augustine's uh, teaching. By the way, Carol asked this morning, is it Augustine or Augustine? It's either one. Whichever one, whichever way you want it to be. I've heard it, we've heard it both ways. The second major work of Augustine is the city of God. And let's trace it real quick. In the city of God, this in the year, uh, not in the city of God, but in the year 410, 
the uh, Visigoths sacked the city of Rome. And this is so underplayed to the way I'm about to describe it. I wish I could just make it really, really, really dramatic. But the city of Rome had not been under any threat of any kind in 800 years. The eternal city. It is like nothing will ever happen to Rome, ever, ever, ever. It's always been and always will be. This is Rome, and this is the way people thought about it. And when the city was ransacked by these people, it was, a shock. It was like 9-11 on steroids. It was a shock to the system of all the people of Rome in ways that we can't, I guess we can sort of imagine. It was, how can this be? But it was. And the pagans... We were still mighty plentiful in Rome, the Roman Empire, blamed it on the Christians. If we had not abolished the worship of Jupiter and Saturn and Zeus and whoever the gods were, if we had not abandoned our pagan worship and recognized this Christianity, uh, everything would have been okay. It's the Christians' fault. Augustine wrote the city of God to partially to refute that thinking, and partially to set forth along the lines of what we heard preached this morning, that the kingdom... So here we had, we had the Roman Empire sort of identified with the Christians, and it all got conflated, and Augustine says, no. The city of God is not the city of man. We should not have our eyes on the ebbs and flows of the politics of the day, even though they result in death and disaster and suffering or victory and triumph or whatever it is. Our eyes should be fixed on the New Jerusalem, which is the city of God. Man is in rebellion against God. God has ordered the ups and downs and the uh, rise and fall of kingdoms. And also in this idea in Roman society that, that wealth and peace and, and um, easy times were a sign of God ble- God's blessing, Augustine refutes this. This is not a sign of God's blessing necessarily. It may be a blessing. But blessings and hard times fall on the just and the unjust alike, just as the Bible teaches us. So Augustine refutes the pagans and then provides an exposition to the people of that day that grounds them in Christian faith that is not uncaring or ignorant or, or un, um, unaware of what's going on in the context of society, but teaches them not to get their hopes wrapped up in the events of the day. Can, I, can you see it? Can you, can you sense it? People are practicing Christianity, yes, but just underneath that, there's 
my portfolio and a good, solid, stable government and this and that, and now it's all gone, and what are we to do? And Augustine is saying, that's not your hope. Your hope is the new Jerusalem, the city of God, which God himself will provide. It's, 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 it's powerful in ways that we still stand here 2,000 or 1,800 years later and talk about it. So this is the city of God. The idea in Rome that humans were perfectible, Augustine says, no, humans are not perfectible. In this life, wealth and riches, I mentioned that. Christ is the only answer for salvation. Augustine also said, said this about the um, uh, Scripture. Uh, Christ is, is hidden in the... Uh, he had a sweep of history. He was kind of a philosophy of all of history under God's direction and guidance and um, this, this way of looking at... And when it came to Scripture, it was all about Christ. Christ hidden in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament. The sweep of history is all about the city of God and redemption. So anyway, it's, there it is. Pick up. Uh, some of it's a little dense uh, and a little difficult at times, but it's, it's very worthy to think about and scan or at least read summaries of that. Finally, uh, before we quit here in just a moment, let's look at Jerome, the third, third father. Uh, Jerome... Uh, was born in um, Croatia, what's now Croatia, in a province called Dalmatia. Now, I didn't look up Dalmatia, but I'm curious to know if we get Dalmatian dogs from out of Dalmatia. Does anybody know? I don't. Um, that's where where Jerome was born. Now, Jerome was uh, also a bright young man. And uh, was sent to be educated. And you say there's a pattern here. He's had a licentious life in his, in his early education years. And as uh, he would engage in his various licentious activities, which had to do with booze and women and having a good time, um, he would feel guilty. And... He's in school in Rome, by the way. Uh, and when he would, conscience got the better of him, his conscience got the better of him, he would go down to the catacombs. So, you know, the Christians had taken the martyrs and stored them up, stored them bones down in the catacomb. That he would go down in the catacombs and think and reflect, and his, he was searching, searching. Rolling in his mind. What's up? Feel bad. Y'all remember if you... So you remember the catacombs? The only catacomb I've seen. Would you go to Lima when we were in Lima? The catacomb under the Catholic church there? Were you on that? Was anybody on that ship? Anybody seen some catacombs? Rome? Roman catacombs? Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. But anyways, Jerome would, would walk around down there. Very, very bright... Uh, he was uh, he was ultimately converted uh, based on various uh, 
Christian influences on his life. And once converted, he uh, acquired a, an advanced knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. And y'all help the ones that you y'all that know the sequence more clearly because I, um, prior to this time, Christian scriptures had been um, uh, translated out of Septuagint, which was a translation of other stuff. So he, uh, Jerome went back to the original Greek and Hebrew. At the, at the direction of um, one of the bishops in Rome and uh, translated the Latin Vulgate. That's his big thing. Vulgate meaning that he translated it from the original languages into the Latin. Vulgate, the root, the connected to the word vulgar, meaning not cursing, but common, translated in the common language. So this is Jerome's Big contribution. But Jerome's life was more than this. Jerome was very instructive on how to live the Christian life in the context of his day. He wrote lots of letters. He became friends with a couple of widows. Um, and those widows did not want to remarry. They wanted to live a life of um, uh devoted to Christ, and he was very instructive to them in his writings, and he became accused of uh, having wrong relationships with those ladies. And he removed himself to Bethlehem, and that's where he, he lived out his life, continuing to preach and teach. He had to uh, uh, conduct the rest of his work in Bethlehem. So those are just three. Any thoughts or comments? I did. I didn't mean to just do a big long monologue, but it, which is what it was. Uh, thoughts, comments, and anything? I got a couple of points to wrap up before we go. I hope if we do nothing more together, I hope that we can um, better appreciate better that we can. Appreciate our roots. We are connected in ways to these folks. You know, a lot of times we're um, accused of not understanding our history. We are deeply connected into the to the to these uh, church fathers, of which those are three, and of which there are many. So hopefully, you can have some appreciation of those folks. The last two points are these. As we think about, that one kind of got cut off. As we think about these church fathers, we need to think about major shifts that are occurring. We'll pick this up next time. The canonization of Scripture. How did we get our Bible? Because it all is formulated right around the time of these church fathers. How do we understand the Holy Scripture that we have there as being God's revealed Word? And uh, alongside that, the actual development of the formalized Roman Catholic Church. Uh, how did that come about? How did we move from local churches with teaching elders and ruling elders... Of which Ambrose, the church father, one of these church fathers, by the way, 
in his writings, acknowledges and expresses as the appropriate way to govern a church, how do we go from there to uh, the Pope uh, and a Roman Catholic hierarchy as we see it, from which a thousand years later, we will seek, we, I say we, our spiritual forefathers and mothers, will seek to reform through the period of the Reformation so that the gospel can be reclaimed and proclaimed uh, as God would have it be done.